Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. In late January 2003, three Iraqi expats came to the White House. They met with President Bush, Vice President Cheney, and National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. The purpose of the meeting, which came two months before the U.S. invasion, was a little unclear. The writer Kanan Makia was one of the Iraqis. And my overall impression is that the whole thing was essentially a public relations exercise. The questions were pro forma, but among them was, how do you think the Americans will be received? And I think we all answered that they would be received positively. Makia actually told the president that they'd be greeted with sweets and flowers. But what he remembers most about the meeting is the plan that Bush laid out for after the invasion. President Bush suddenly announced that there would not be one army going into, the, into Iraq, but two armies. And I remember it was myself who asked him, what do you mean? And then he said the first army would be to topple the regime, and very shortly thereafter there would be the second army to rebuild Iraq and to relaunch the country. Now, as he said this, he suddenly lifted up his eyes and looked at Condoleezza Rice. And I think his words were right, meaning, have I described it correctly? And then the odd thing that I remember is that Condoleezza Rice, her eyes looked to the floor as she said yes. For Makia, Rice's body language was a tell. The plan for after the invasion might not be fully baked. Makia's suspicion was confirmed when he met with retired Army General Jay Garner. Garner was the guy who'd be in charge of the so-called Second Army, rebuilding Iraq. He was in an empty office and uh, with one secretary and hardly any files, and he said he had just started his job the week before. And I was utterly uh, shocked by this. Garner had worked in Iraq during Desert Storm. Now he was taking a four-month leave from his job as a military contractor to manage the post-war effort. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld seemed to think that was plenty of time. 
George W. Bush was the first American president to hold an MBA. He was supposed to bring managerial skill to the executive branch. But the Bush White House turned out to be a bureaucratic mess. And nowhere was that clearer than in the planning for post-war Iraq. The president's top foreign policy people had radically different ideas about what the U.S. should do. But most of the time, they didn't make their pitches to the president and let him decide. Some administration officials soft-pedaled their views. Others used bureaucratic sabotage to get their way. Colin Powell, who ran the State Department, had always been skeptical of invading Iraq, although he never explicitly told the president not to go ahead with it. On the other hand, Rumsfeld's Department of Defense was all in on the war. The job of getting those different agencies to work together to plan the war and its aftermath fell to Frank Miller. He worked for Condoleezza Rice. The task that I was given was to examine all the nuts and bolts issues uh, that had to be addressed if uh, the United States went to war against Iraq. Obtaining overflight rights, things like that that nobody was taking care of. None of these conversations were smooth or easy, especially the ones about what was supposed to happen after the invasion. That's because the two main players, Rumsfeld and Powell, were thinking about that problem very differently. Powell believed that Iraq after Saddam would be the U.S.'s responsibility. He subscribed to the Pottery Barn rule. If you break it, you own it. His State Department had a group called the Future of Iraq Project. They were trying to think about what kind of government might emerge in Iraq. But they didn't have any real power. Kanan Makia was in those State Department meetings. I thought it had to be a federal state. And there are very many different kinds of federalisms. Should it be administratively structured federalisms or should it be ethnically structured federalisms? So we were having those kinds of debates since none of us were doing anything practical. Miller met with the Future of Iraq project once. He didn't find their conversations particularly useful. What they told us was sort of philosophical things, not action-oriented things, and they never asked to come back and see us again. And we didn't ask to see them because that wasn't what we were about. We were trying to fix things. So, when it came to the hands-on work of rebuilding Iraq, that State Department project was all talk, no action. But Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, didn't even want to talk. Rumsfeld liked the phrase, we don't do windows, meaning we, the military, don't do humanitarian stuff. Robert Draper, the author of To Start a War, says Rumsfeld also tossed around a second catchphrase. We're going to take our hands off the bicycle seat and let you know, them learn how to ride the bicycle for themselves. An incredibly condescending thing, I have to say, to, to say of, of you know, the Iraqi people. But that was his view. We're going to do them this monumental favor of relieving them of this tyrant, but we're not going to sit around and have soldiers hammering schoolhouses together and keeping the peace. That's for the Iraqis to do. Before Rumsfeld ran the Defense Department, he spent a decade in private business. And he got sort of obsessed with efficiency. He liked taking over companies and downsizing them. In 2001, the U.S. military had forced out Afghanistan's Taliban and installed a transitional government. A year later, it wasn't yet clear that American forces would remain in the country for decades to come. At that point, Afghanistan was Rumsfeld's vision of modern warfare. Quick targeted strikes and a speedy resolution, with a minimum of expense and lives lost. Rumsfeld wanted to get in and get out. He wasn't interested in reconstruction. But he also didn't want to give up that turf to anyone else. When it became clear that there would be some kind of 
post-Saddam occupying force, then Rumsfeld seized the moment and decided, well, if that's going to happen, it sure as hell is going to be the Pentagon. It's not going to be the State Department. If there was going to be a bicycle seat and hands on it, he he sure didn't want it to be Colin Powell. So Rumsfeld really muscled out the State Department. The, The Defense Department then became in charge. And this really had disastrous consequences because Rumsfeld himself had a personal disinclination to immerse himself in the details the very complicated details after the invasion when it was clear that it was not going to be, as some had said, a cakewalk. The way Frank Miller describes it, Rumsfeld could be incredibly annoying. He liked to play mind games. One of Don Rumsfeld's trick was to pretend to doze during a meeting. And as things wound on, he would say, well, what about X, Y, or Z, which had already been discussed and decided 20 minutes earlier? And so to completely throw discussions with the president off track which made for difficulty in running a meeting and reaching conclusions. Miller remembers one meeting in particular about rebuilding plans. Tommy Franks, the general in charge of the invasion, was also there. In that meeting, General Franks outlined the same plan that Bush mentioned to Kanan Makia, American troops sticking around to rebuild the country. The president asked Franks, as our forces swept forward, who was going to maintain law and order behind them? And Frank said it was the U.S. military. And of course, there was no plan for the military to do that. But we didn't know that. We we asked that twice. Why do you think he didn't tell the truth? I have no idea. How how pissed were you when you found out? Hugely. Hugely. A spokesman said General Franks had no comment. This is Slowburn. I'm your host, Noreen Malone. In this series, we focused on the ideas and the people that launched the war in Iraq. That's where all the energy was among the American foreign policy leadership. And that decision, to invade Iraq, is what set everything else into motion. But the way the invasion was executed had enormous consequences. It remains in many ways the legacy of the Iraq war. So why didn't the administration make a real plan for what to do after the bombing stopped? Who was most responsible for that failure? And what were the consequences for the people of Iraq? This is Episode 8, Shock and Awe. Hi, I hope you've been enjoying listening to Slow Burn. The last two episodes of this season are available only to Slate Plus members. You can sign up by going to slate.com slash slow burn or clicking on the link in the show notes. It's only $15 for your first three months. With your subscription, you also get access to bonus Slow Burn Plus episodes with extra interviews and stories from behind the scenes. And your membership lets you listen to every Slate show ad-free, not to mention gives you unlimited access to Slate's website. So to hear the rest of this season of Slow Burn and become a member, go to slate.com slash slow burn or click the link in the episode notes. Thanks for supporting our work. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money. 